Welcome back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EdmProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Maxim Laney. Maxim Laney is a Belgian DJ and producer who's currently signed to Armada Music. Breaking out initially as a DJ, he's been building his career in the dance music industry for nearly two decades with a stream of successful original releases, as well as remixes for artists like Armin van Buren and Lost Frequencies. Now, in this episode, we start off with Maxim Laney's background, discussing how he initially got his start in music. He explains how he turned his passion for DJing into an actual career and what prompted him to start working on and releasing his own original music, even though at the start, he was very resistant to it. He discusses the main lessons that he learned from his production mentors that he had early on and how he found a balance between a sound that straddles the line between both underground and commercial. On the production side, Maxim breaks down his overall philosophy towards writing and producing music, not just on a technical level, but a more of a philosophical level. He discusses how he conceptualizes a track in his head and then creates that in the DAW, offering advice on how producers of all levels can do this with their own music. He also discusses his favorite software and analog tools, how he approaches automation, and his favorite ways to add tension and energy to a track. Later on, Maxim Laney discusses how he and his team have pivoted his trajectory and focus during the pandemic. He explains how they're approaching marketing and releasing music different in an effort to adapt to the decrease in shows and an increase in streaming. As we slide into the interview, I'm going to play you a recent track from Maxim called Riding the Wave. It's a really great single, so hopefully you'll like it and get a feel for it so you can get excited for the interview. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the interview. Here's the Edium Podcast with Maxim Laney. Welcome back to the EDM podcast today. I'm joined by Maxim Laney. Maxim, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course. So to start, I'd like to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music and later on music production. Well, um, I always kind of tell the same story is that when I was young, um, my parents were uh, separated as uh, most of the parents nowadays, and I had music on both sides. What, uh, which means for me that um, when I would switch homes, um, I would hear not the same music, but the same amount of music. So for me, it was kind of a, a reflex or a natural thing that there is just music constantly everywhere. If we're in the yeah. living room and uh, even in the bathroom, and it was the same for both sides. So I think that going back to my childhood, this is definitely something that uh, gave me this little nudge, this kick in myself uh, to just be around music all the time. So this is definitely, for me, the start as far as I can recall. So at what point did you start thinking about picking up an instrument and trying to perform some of the music that you were hearing? Well, in my days, because I have a certain age, uh, (laughs) in my days, (laughs) um, I was discovering the, the cassettes, so the, the really the audio tapes and um, I received a, a hi-fi setup 
which firmly said, do not record from the radio. So I, re- I, re- I know this vividly from my memories. Yeah. And I, of course, the first thing you do as a teenager is re- you record from the radio because it's prohibited. So I started recording on tapes and then uh, by accident, I pressed the two tapes at the same time and it blended. So I said, whoa, what's this? <laughs> what's this? And I, I realized that you could play with one tape to another. And then I started making mixtapes without even mixing, just recording. Not so long after, I discovered that you could do this with CDs as well and also with vinyl. And uh, it's only because me going to a private party um, that I saw somebody play uh, a vinyl. I think it was even a Michael Jackson track together with a dance track. And I said, huh? I, I, I literally didn't know what I was listening to. And it was one beat together with another so, uh, you know, I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine at that time. I think we must have been, I don't know, 14, 15 years old. Mm-hmm. Do you know some something more about it? Yeah, I have a friend mixing in a cafe. And so we went listening to this because that's what we did. We had no internet. Uh, we barely yeah. had phones. So we had to move ourselves physically to go into another place and listen to this phenomenon. <laughs> and, um, and then, you know, before we knew it, we were obsessed with trying to match two tracks together we were we are not talking about beat matching already just blending two tracks so that's what we that became the the mission and um, finding a turntable uh, buying a turntable finding a mixer blah 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 until uh, we had some kind of uh, yeah i'm not going to say decent setup but some kind of (laughs) some kind of macgyver setup and um, and then we tried and we tried for days and for weeks until one of us hit the magic spot of one track with another. Um, and it's only later that I started experimenting with uh, first hip hop. And then I went to the other extreme, like hardcore electronic music. Um, so I went from left to right before finding a genre that was in my eyes, mine, you know? Yeah. So at that point, were you starting to DJ parties? Were you thinking about getting into yeah, yeah. kind of like a club Yeah, because scene? I was the guy who, now I can say this without, uh, being a little bit arrogant but i was the first guy in my entourage to really do this so i was yeah. only 40 15 and then later on when i was 16 17 i was the guy with the music so when people said yeah, we, we need music let's call max and yeah. um, so the party started really early uh you know even on tuesday evenings when we knew that at school we had one hour later on wednesday you know, when we we could sleep longer, we did the party on on Tuesday evening. <laughs> so, yeah, we, and then it was already at my 18th that I, I did really big party. It was the Millennium Party because it was uh, the year 2000. And then mm-hmm. we did a huge party. Like, I know, we really took over a house and we did 100, 150 people. Uh, and then we, we, we mixed and uh, I already went through this uh, era of doing hip hop first, then discovering that four to the floor, this house music beat was really much more my love. And it's only after that that I realized, well, you can even earn money with this. So you were 18 when things were starting to pick up with you, at least with the local scene at that point, were you thinking about university? Were you thinking about trying to, you know, get into more paid gigs? Kind of where were you at at that point? But I had to focus on some kind of education because, you know, my parents were a little bit responsible and they said, 
what is the plan here? Apparently, yeah. you're not planning to do your exams and all of those things. So I said, yeah, but uh, first I lied to myself, like I'm going to study a little bit. But um, there were, an, at that time, my home city, Ghent in Belgium, was kind of the place to be at that time. I have to be honest, um, the guys from uh, Solwax, too many DJs, they were uprising residents. Um, we had this huge culture uh, that now yeah. has a big rise of uh, the guys like Yves de Reuter from Bonsai Records that now are huge again. They were the legacy. So I was influenced a lot. And there were a lot of parties. You could easily go out uh, two, three times a weekend. And um, so I knew that my schedule could be full. I could play uh, because Ghent is, is a really uh, funny city because in the week it's filled with students. And in the weekend mm -hmm. you can really attend big parties. So I was a bit like a spoiled kid, you know, spoiled in the way that the city spoiled me. And I, yeah. I found it really normal that I could play on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and then go out on Sunday. So when your parents tell you, you're good, you can go to study, or you can earn a thousand euro worth of money at that age in a week. Yeah, it's yeah. a bit difficult to... Yeah, tell some kid otherwise. So uh, at a certain point, they came to me and they were sitting together. So my parents were separated. And I said, hmm, it's not a good sign when they are sitting together in my yeah. living room. And they said, look, we know you're not going to school. If you are planning on doing this thing like DJing, uh, you need to be professional in six months. What? Drama, of course, because... <laughs> That was yeah. not how I planned my life. <laughs> I wanted to be uh, cool and rebellious, but no. After six months, I have to provide income uh, that I could pay a rent or something. So, you know, I started talking to the people I was playing at, like, look, can I maybe do something like an invoice or be professional? And, you know, sometimes it's, it went along, sometimes not. But that's the, I think it was 2003 that I started you know, semi-professionally to gig and earn money. How important was it for you to have your parents come together and say, you need to figure this out in the next six months in order for them to support you with it? If I look back, this, this is the gift I received from them, like being mature and adult. And they told me like, because nine out of 10, they would say, no, and you have to stop this and you have to go to school. You're going to ruin your future. And then two options, uh, you stop with music, which would be, in my case, really bad or sad uh, that are, you know, seeing where I'm now. Or otherwise, you, you break with your parents and you do things that are not good, maybe illegal and so on. So it's a bit dramatic yeah. how I explain it, but I think it's pretty much like this. And I received an opportunity. They said, you have to work. You have to be responsible. Uh, work legally as well. Uh, mm -hmm. Build a future. Um, but that made me jump into the pool or the sea even better jump without knowing how to swim so at what point did production start getting looped into what you were doing only later only later i'm a, i'm this kind of guy that uh, dj'd first i had a really small episode in my teenage years that i discovered a program that a friend was working with it was a bit the same time that daft punk was releasing uh, mm. so i remember this uh, vaguely but then i said whoa i don't like this uh, it's like it's like working at school, you know. Uh, yeah. And it's only later in 2006 that I, um, you know, because I was reaching already a little peak in my hometown and in Belgium as a DJ. But then there were, you know, producers getting around, and um, 
there was in Belgium this huge electro vibe. Uh, I don't know if you remember Crookers, Bloody Beetroots, uh, Justice, all those guys were, it, this was quite overwhelming. So I was losing grip in a certain way. And then I, some people came to me like, yo, shouldn't you be in a studio? And I'm like, no, I have a huge record collection, vinyl, and I'm okay. I'm earning a lot of money, you know, a bit silly, a bit uh, naive. But yeah. then I really started listening to some people and said, okay, I was looking around. I had some friends uh, starting out, uh, like, for example, Colombo, who is a superstar DJ in uh, mm. Brazil. Uh, the guys from Lulu Players, also friends of mine uh, in the French-speaking part of Belgium. And so we yeah. started exchanging, like, are you doing this? Yes, are you doing this? <laughs> um, and then I, I started making music with uh, a guy who, who's pretty huge in, uh, in techno, uh, Ramon Tapia. And uh, okay. he, he was not so far from me. And he said, yo, come over to my studio. I have a computer. And I started working uh, at that time in Cubase. And it's only later on that I started uh, to discover that there was a program uh, called Ableton. Mm. And um, it was only in the beginning of Ableton as well. And I started taking lessons uh, with another friend producer called Sam Soda, who's, uh, who had a huge, huge couple of years uh, in Berlin, uh, a couple of years back, uh, more in the classic house scene. And he taught me to work with uh, Ableton. And then uh, I learned one really, really crucial, important thing is that if you can visualize it in your mind, you can also do it in Ableton. And um, I still practice this up to date, or if I have a masterclass or I teach or whatever, I still use this trick. Like you take a clap or a kick and you, you want to draw it, or you want to you know, swing it or do whatever, throw it away, you do it as in your mind, and it works in Ableton. I think this is one of the most successful features that in Ableton, you can literally do whatever you want. Anything else looking back that were really valuable tips that you picked up from those two kind of more mentors that you were learning production from? Yeah, that uh, you shouldn't listen too much to somebody else, <laughs> really, because uh, I started out in Cubase, as I said, uh, you know, maybe I could have quit production because it, if I open Cubase now, I can do literally nothing. Uh, so that's why you have different software programs. That's the real, that's the reality. Uh, and somebody could say, oh, you have to learn this program. It's the best. Yeah, I would say F you because no, there is a program for everybody. It's, it's, yeah. it's like uh, if a chef likes to cook with this knife, yeah, okay, fine. Another uses another knife. And it's the same with music production. Some guys do everything with machines. Fine, I can't. I do a mix of both. So this is a huge lesson or a trick or whatever you call it I want to give to other people is really search for the program that works best for you because that's why you have different programs. One focuses more on this kind of technique. The other one of them, uh, look at FL Studios who started out as Fruity Loops. Yeah. Was, was uh, in the beginning, people were laughing with this program and now it's used by the biggest producers. So it's evolving. And uh, this is mm -hmm. so interesting in music. So you said that you started picking up production in 2006, kind of moving forward as you started to release a bit more steadily, especially into like 2012, 2013. Would you say that there was like a turning point with you, with your production slash career, where you started to kind of grow it to get it to the point that you're at now? I consider producing as a never ending story. So it's, it's a start to finish and a finish. It's like it's a Japanese uh, philosophy 
the end is the end, you know. It's when you mm. stop. And you can see this uh, dramatic or romantic, it's up to you. But I see it like this. It's a huge voyage evolving as an artist. And when I started out in 2006, I was literally working with other people, trying to learn, trying to figure out what I do know now. If uh, When I listen to my first productions, I'm already in there. You can hear a little bit of Maxime in every track. Of course, the sound is evolving. What I'm proud of is that I released from the first time and that I made mistakes. And this is what I want to tell everybody else. Make a lot of mistakes in the best way. Because you make mistakes when you play soccer. You make mistakes when you go to school. But ooh, big taboo when you make mistakes <laughs> in the music industry. Yeah. I learned from my mistakes. I learned because I know that... Um, when I release the track, it's out there, you're vulnerable, and people can judge you. And okay, that's scary. But on the other hand, if you look like huge artists that influence me, like Prince, for example, or even George Michael, totally different mm -hmm. from my genre, you hear a track in the beginning, a track at the end. Sometimes it's bad in the beginning, sometimes it's worse at the end, or vice versa. But they yeah. are honest, they release music. I don't like it when artists just release one track and then they claim to be, I don't know what. For me, that doesn't work because it's throwing yourself out there in the game that makes you a real artist, in my opinion. Yeah, I think there's a common mantra among kind of more business CEO types that looking back, they wish they would have made the same mistakes only sooner. And I think that goes along with what you're saying, where people are afraid to put that music out there early and they just stunt their growth because of it. That's the reason so many of your favorite artists have had multiple side projects or, you know, previous artist projects because they've gotten through those to get to where they are now at this, you know, more commercially successful level. Yeah. And um, I, I released a lot um, during the years and some tracks have had no attention. Some tracks have had good attention. I learned from that and then sometimes I, I was stuck for a couple of years not knowing what to do. Um, but the real turning point came when I had to look into myself in the mirror and say, look, the music you're making is first of all not good enough and second, it's not selling. And it's really cool if you're mm. underground. It's really cool if you have music that only a few people listen to, but that is not making a career and it's certainly not the reality. So uh, everybody around me was saying, uh, it's, it's, it's nice, your music, but it's sweet. But uh, I was stuck in this deep house vibe. And then I realized that this kind of music has to be as good as the best guys out there. So if you look like people like Saint-Germain or Nicolas Jarre, if your music is not matching this, then you have to do something else. And this is what I did. I, I switched everything and I started making my music a bit more commercial. And that's when the first strikes started to really work on the dance floor. And then I said, okay, this is really going somewhere. People were asking me, what is this ID? And I said, hmm, because my first tracks were also good and some people were turning their heads. This was it. And then you have to learn and look in the mirror. And also a big turning point for me was working with other people in the studio, not just be myself alone. It doesn't work like this. If you look at the big artists, they all have pretty much a team working, mastering, yeah. mixing, maybe helping you with keys. And this is what I did. And this is really the big turning point for me a couple of years ago. So you mentioned something that I want to touch back on where you made your sound a little bit more commercial. 
I think a lot of artists struggle with that idea because they want to make sure that their music is still authentic and raw and they don't want to necessarily sacrifice that. How would you respond to that idea? Well, I, I was in this position, and this is what I'm uh, saying with this example of uh, Nicolas Jarre, or, for yeah. example, another big guy, David August, who unfortunately doesn't make a lot of music anymore. But if your music is not getting going even close to those guys, then you have to look in the mirror and say, okay, uh, your music doesn't have necessarily to be like the best, but if you're going into their genre, and if you're wandering into this really obscure places, then it better be really good because how are you going to touch those guys? Uh, how are you going to find an audience for this? Um, and it, it goes the same way if you try to go into this huge EDM vibe or now in the techno vibe, it's the same. If yeah. you're not getting close to the drum code productions of Adam Bayer, yeah. yeah, I would say good luck. And um, I was looking into my genre and for me, this deep house vibe I was in was okay. But it was not good enough. Uh, some labels were really responding to me like this, is, and they were really. It was a hard comment, but they said it's that same loopy house again. I said, "Oh, this is harsh." Um, but yeah, afterwards, when I look back, they were right. I think it's tough because it's like uh, it's tough to not hear that and think that that's an attack on yourself because music for so many people is so personal. Mm -hmm. But this is it. This is this is now we go back to the prior point: is when you release, you're vulnerable. And you're yeah. open for comments or worse, uh, negative feedback. And um, this is a part of the process. And uh, you have to jump because if you don't jump, you don't learn. Awesome. So with that, let's kind of slide things over into production. There's a lot that I want to get into, but I think a you know good way to start about this is you recently did a course with Armada University um, talking about your production and I believe some of your remixing techniques. So just kind of give me a preview. What were some of the main things that you felt like students got out of that course? Well, uh, I think I can say almost uh, with 100% certainty that what I'm explaining in this course, and I did also some live uh, courses last year. Um, some I had a lot of those plans this year, unfortunately. Um, is that I talk outside of the box, and I don't talk only theoretically speaking. Move this kick like this. Cut off so many hertz here. Uh, make sure your chords. No, I don't do this. Uh, that's fine, but that's not yeah. for me. I try to explain the philosophy. And when I talk about a remix, I talk about the fact, think of the remix already in your mind, how you would play it on the dance floor and start from this idea. This is how I work. And also about the fact that you can use your mistakes when you're producing. Like I do it all the time. I stumble upon something that goes accidentally and I use it in my track. And this is how I get into this really absurd breaks and those huge drops that I do is usually because the track finishes at some point, my first draft, and I said, oh, imagine if I would drop now. This would be really silly. And I do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this is what I talk about. And um, I think that a lot of people who are really professional, they don't have a lot on, of my tricks and tips and stuff. And I respect that because they are usually at my level or way higher. But all the other people who are interested, they can learn a lot because it's a philosophy that they might have not heard about before. 
So kind of on that, when you're starting a track from scratch, are you generally coming in with some type of idea of the way that the track could be? And if you are, is it, you know, like a synth idea, is it a melodic idea, or is it more of like a story or, you know, like a bigger landscape that you're trying to convey? Well, usually I know beforehand how the track will be because I try to limit my time in the studio. It's a technique I've been practicing last years and I limit myself so that when I get in the studio, it's almost like oh, it's playtime. Like I'm waiting for days. And when I have an idea, I usually build it up in my mind for a long time. Sometimes I write about it, not too much. And I try to compress it as much as possible in my mind. So when I'm in the studio, I can't wait to draw it. And this is where yeah. Ableton comes in really handy. It's like you can work really fast. I'm not saying I work really good in the mixing style or correct, mm. but I work fast. And then this ID, uh, what I usually tell everybody else is don't start with searching one sound because then you can get lost for hours. I did this before. Uh, so yeah. I'm telling them not to do so. Start with a little structure. Like I have a drop in my mind, like one, two, three, four, I stop a big clap and then a sound. You draw this already and then you limit yourself to this and then you only need one sound to find. Otherwise you start the other way around and you can scroll for eight hours into a library and the next sound is more excited than the previous sound. But yeah, this is for me contraproductive. So I would say like this. I love that perspective. And one of the ways that I try to think about it is for the first two hours of a track, everything that I'm doing is just to get it to a spot where it's good enough. I'm not going for the 100% perfect clap. I'm going for something that's 80% of the way there. And then I know I can always fish through libraries later when I'm tired and yeah. don't feel like working on the track. Because at the start, I just want to work on that foundation. Yeah, I only do quick work in the beginning. When I find myself in front of my ID, like the reflection of my ID, I say, okay, now we can work on finding some good samples some vocal hooks, whatever. And yeah. even then it's possible to change everything afterwards, but you need this ID to be visible. So you mentioned that a lot of the times you come up with these ideas for the tracks and your head just simmering, you know, like a few days or a week beforehand. I think, you know, for a lot of producers, they wish that was the case, but so often they just kind of go to the DAW and they really don't have any idea of where to take that track. So kind of a tough question, but what advice would you give to somebody like that that just doesn't really have these very vivid ideas for what they can put down into their DAW. Well, you can do two things is um, do scroll in several sounds, but limit yourself, for example, really practically with a timer, uh, limit yourself. Oh, I'm only going to scroll through 50 sounds, you know, something like that. It's not what I would do, but this is an option. Or the other tip I would give, which I practice as well, take your top five tracks that you love at the moment, put them next to you. And if the sound is not coming close, you know what the reality is. And this is really important. Always take some huge example next to you because it's, it's always easy to put shitty tracks next to it. Oh, mine is not so bad. No, no. <laughs> put the creme de la creme, like the, the, the Ferrari next to it. And then yeah. you'll know where you're at, you know, and I'm doing this constantly. And then sometimes I'm really frustrated, but I said, okay, I, I dare to play those tracks as a DJ. So why not compare my music to it? So kind of diving into more of the technical side of production, it seems like you're kind of approaching things with more of a theoretical perspective, but I'm curious to hear what you're using from like a sound design and a processing standpoint. Obviously, baselines are really important for your sound. So what are you using in terms of synthesizers for your basses and then any type of uh, or typical plugins that you're using for post-processing? 
Well, so um, the, the first things I do to create my beats uh, is work with several hardware stuff I have. I have a, a TR8, uh, which is uh, uh, Roland. Uh, yeah. It's a classic combination of 808, 909, um, which can easily be replaced by the simple plugins that you have in machine. You have it in Ableton standard, all fine. But I like to mm -hmm. play with it with my fingers like a DJ set. And this is how I created some of my claps that I still reuse. And then I built uh, my own sample pack, you know, for myself. Uh, yeah. I have, for example, the my own uh, ride, eh? like it's that yeah. techno ride. I tweaked this one from an Electribe. Uh, this is a Koch Electribe machine. And to be honest, I think I use the same ride since three years, four years, something like that. Mm. And then every time I tweak it, you know. Um, so this is really important. And in terms of everything else, baseline is all software because I used to work uh, for those things uh, with machines, with hardware, Yeah. but then you really need to be a pro and it costs a lot of money too. So uh, I've been into studios where they have like, I don't know, 100,000 worth of equipment. Problem is with hardware is you play on it. You cannot save this like a plugin. Plug yeah. in, you can do screenshots, you can save a library, you can do whatever you want. So I, I learned from this, and then I use uh, some standard plugins. Um, and Arturia has a really yeah. great one, the Jupyter uh, V8, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, I was tired of this one for many years, and then I rediscovered it, uh, because there's one synth that really resembles to everything I do now with the stab. Then, 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 then. And then uh, a little trick that I use, I'm not going to say the name of the plugin because it's, it's a really good trick, but it comes down to using a really good compressor over it. And a compressor can be something that is standard in your program like Ableton or Logic, whatever, or it mm -hmm. can be something, this one I will tell, is um, the, the two plugins from Dada Life, which are yeah. cheap and really stunning. The, the one thing that I will share, it's, it's an amazing scent. It's the serum. And I th I'm practically sure that this will go into the producer history as, as like we know uh, the 909 or we know yeah. the, the, the pulley scent and all those classics. I'm sure as a plugin, this will be something. But I know that so, so many people use it from drum and bass to house to techno. And it's a simple plugin. Uh, yeah. You can you can ease now and nowadays twenty twenty you can rent a plugin online. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is this is something I'm really fond of because it's easy to use and uh, it's like pre pre cooked food. You know, it's like <laughs> you don't have to do much. You're just scrolling down and it uh, it saves a lot of time. I think it's really interesting. I just want to point out one thing about your workflow in terms of the fact that the main outboard gear that you have is drums, because I feel like a lot of producers, especially in your style, might just use drums in their DAW and then use outboard gear for the synths. And I think you pointed out one thing where it's pretty inexpensive, like the Roland uh, TR8, it's about four or 500 bucks. The Electrab you can pick up used for like about 250 US. So 
for the sound that you're getting, it's a really small machine in the Electribe. So, you know, throw it in your backpack, bring it on a plane or something. And just the reason I'm saying this is I think it's important for you to find what your workflow is. I'm the opposite way. I love my drums in the DAW and my synths outboard, but it's important to find what is your style. Like you tried the synths outboard, didn't like it, but then found what your flow is. Yeah. And also you have to limit yourself. This is the number one rule for me. Um, I've been in studios of friends and people I know that have really like, like a dream studio and then they do nothing with it. And it, it pisses me off because, yeah, you need talent, sure. But some people also need the possibility to work and they have it, but it's too much. And so you're getting crazy. It's I always compared when you go to the, to the club met or whatever and you have a buffet of 100 dishes. It's, it's disgusting. I prefer one dish. And this is the technique I do in my music as well. I limit myself to just three. I'm looking around now. One, two, I have four things. And, um, and this is best. And sometimes, you know, not, not so long ago, I, I, I sold my Juno 106, and, um, which was a, is a classic. And people, oh my God, it was like I... Uh, was like a blasphemy it's like i said something wrong about the religion <laughs> and i said yo do you want to buy it no no but don't throw it away i said i'm not throwing it away i'm selling it and i'm buying something else you should never sell it yeah. i said this is typical i'm like do you do something with it no i'm exchanging it for something new and mm. i got uh, a new thing uh, it's called modo um it's a belgian made synth uh, you can just trigger it with uh, with a little MIDI keyboard, and I already made two tracks with it, and I did not even bother to read the manual. I just found sounds in it, said, okay, I like this, press play, and that's it. It's a different sound, and if you go back to the Juno, yeah, I know that people like uh, Yuri's Forn really love to work with it, but yeah, maybe it's not my kind of thing, so it's just like... Uh, an Ableton or a Logic or an FL Studio, you have to pick your weapon. Awesome. So one more kind of follow-up question before we get away from the more technical stuff is an important part of your sound is filter movement. Some producers like to use the filters in their synth, some have something in post. So do you have any preference when it comes to automating your filters? I pretty much press record, then use the filter, and then afterwards I correct myself using the little dots on the program. And then I tend to realize it's better to draw it just as one line goes up, because when I'm DJing, I'm always reflecting myself in a DJ set. I think it's way more logic instead of going all those little dots like this. It's it's really yeah. romantic, but it's not going to work into uh, a DJ set. And again, and then I refer to the people who do use it like this. Those are the real magicians. And I like those music, but then you can only play this in after hours or in a really long set. So my tracks... I made this decision. Uh, I made I make tracks for the dance floor, and that uh, people have a smile on their face. And then some things shouldn't be this romantic. Yeah. So another thing that I want to talk about with regards to your production and kind of on that vein in terms of, um, you know, adding movement to your track, I think you do a really great job kind of keeping a more minimal, straightforward production, not overcomplicating things, but still adding a lot of tension and movement with all of these micro developments. So for you, where do you feel like that comes from in your music where you're adding, you know, small creative elements and textures and movement and kind of one shots? It started when I started to realize that I seriously needed help with my mix on the track because 
the track was overloaded with different sounds. Uh, if you take a track a bit prior to Renaissance, it's called My Story, and it's uh, literally something I made um, in, a, in a different mood, and I was searching for myself, and I was layering it with a hi-hat, then an open hi-hat, then a ride, then a shaker, and then a loop shaker. So of course what happens is this mix becomes impossible unless you're a pro. And then I didn't even start adding chords or strings. <laughs> Let's just <laughs> say a vocal on it. So when I started to strip things down and listen to some other people in the industry and started working really as less is more and uh, making sure that the kick plays with the thumbs so that this thumb gets this huge impact. Then mm -hmm. when I stop using this and I use a little sample, a vocal, it, which is a sample, it's nothing I make. It's like eh, on the background, yeah. it comes in like a refreshing glass of water. And this is what you need to do. Yeah. I, I, I turn things on and then I do something else. I leave space in between. And this is where you think, wow, this is so many things. No. It's just little things. And uh, another trick I'm willing to share is that I always, in the beginning of the process of a track, I always use a string or a pad, and I call it a tension. tension. Mm. It doesn't matter what it is, something that might annoy you, and you put it in this track constantly. And this is so important that it fills this void. And then you, because I used to do it the other way around, I didn't use a tension, and then I wanted to fill up, 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 just to create something, you know? Yeah. So we were talking a bit before this about how you and your team kind of had to switch up what your marketing and promotion strategy was this summer because you don't have shows to be able to promote your music with other DJs and with playing yourself. So kind of talk about what are some of the things that you and your team are doing differently in order to continue to market and grow your project? Well, um, we had to change. Uh, this was uh, obvious from the start. Uh, I had crazy crazy touring in front of us uh, was going to do south africa first time turkey for the first time tomorrowland uh, think three times with the main stage as well we had a huge tracks lined up for march april to conquer the festivals so everything happened and then of course in the beginning uh, nothing yeah. is fine but then um my team armada management myself everybody was on the same page okay we need to act quickly. This is the bottom line, act quickly and start releasing now. And yeah. which track, not a club track, not a festival track, easy listening. And then I raised my hand and I said, okay, something that is easy to stream. Um, so the previous single, uh, Riding the Wave, uh, was actually recorded end of last year, but wasn't finished. So we finished it over the internet. Um, and this track did it almost as good as Renaissance uh, in the short term. So it proved right to adapt yourself really quickly. This is uh, one thing I will learn uh, from the whole situation is you have to be able to be flexible and adapt yourself really fast. Mm. And uh, this being said, uh, I started producing way more. I produced already a lot, but uh, started uh, co working on collabs with people I never thought I would be collabing with and working intensively with uh, vocalists and songwriters. Also, everything by internet, but uh, 
working really well. So people started to send me acapellas. I started to send over instrumentals. And yeah, by now I have a lot of tracks that are uh, semi-finished and, uh, you know, building a huge library. Yeah. So the tracks that you're working on that have vocals that you're working on with songwriters, are those just, are those just kind of an extension of your current sound or are you shifting things a bit to give it more of a vocal friendly arrangement? Uh, well, the funny thing is I'm, I'm talking constantly about uh, streaming friendly and, and vocal friendly, but in fact, I've, uh, I've increased a lot in BPMs and um, I've taken some of the feedback from last year uh, because I was talking to Kolsch last year when we were in Ibiza and he said, one of the reasons uh, why he was not playing my track, People of the Night, he said, it's too slow for me. So, oh, okay. Mm. Yeah. When I take over a set, for example, at uh, DC 10 uh, for Circo Loco and uh, people are playing 127 BPM, I'm not able to play a track of 120 BPM. So, okay, I get your point. Um, and, and so now I'm, I'm making tracks that are way faster, but I, I like to shock a little bit, so I do a really strong bass, a bit more techno-minded, and then I put this angelic voice on it. And uh, this is where the magic comes in, I think, at this moment. So the sound is changing because I don't want to be the guy that recycles his sounds constantly, but you clearly hear that it's me. Um, but I'm adding vocals and adding collabs, so it's interesting. Anything that you've picked up from the collaborations that you've been doing? Obviously, the remote, so you're not sitting in the studio with these people. But um, any, you know, like tips or workflow things that you've picked up recently from them? Yeah, yeah. There's one guy um, that sent me a track we're working on, and I was blown away by his kick. And uh, I, I really didn't figure out until now how he's done it, but I know that he's mixing his kick with more low than mine and put it more on the forefront which is super dangerous. But um, mm. if you get away with this, it's, it's a huge thing to do, to work on your kick. And I know that somebody we just mentioned, uh, Kolsch, is doing the same. Yeah, uh, it's, it's putting the kick on the forefront. But again, it's, it's, it's for the happy few to do it because it's really difficult. Um, and another thing that I learned is that uh, people like to play with different milliseconds, meaning... Um, that the, the project is shifting in time and so creating a groove. I never did this like this, but the whole project was shifted in milliseconds away. So it took me a while to figure it out because I was yeah. reconnected <laughs> the dots. But so you see that everybody has different tricks, you know? Yeah. Cool. So a couple more questions and then we'll wrap things up. We've got a lot of newer producers listening to this show. What advice would you give to somebody that's just starting out to give them the best chance of success moving forward with music? Oh, this only one thing that is so important is to realize that you have to see this on a long-term base. If you try and make one track and say, I want my track to be like Tale of Us, I want to be on the number one of Beatport, even if it would work, it's the long-term, it's, it's a successor, it's the next track, the track after this, it's your next remix. So if you work on a sound, work first on your own sound, develop something cool, start releasing even if it's on a small label that you're not on the label of solomon no yeah start releasing be happy with this and see it on a long term this is the only rule for me because this is the only thing that got me through this is working year after year yeah and i think that's something it's something that a lot of artists do but it's 
difficult to kind of think about that for yourself. Like for you, like you started releasing 12 years ago with Maxim Laney, at least on Spotify, you had an, you were DJing for, you know, it's nearly a decade before then. And now you're just getting to this point where you're, you know, got a very success, successful career. You're working with Armada, you've got great relationships and, you know, it's the long haul. It's 20 plus years that you've put into this. Mm -hmm. But other people do it way faster and it's also possible. Then it's a combination yeah. of talent, maybe a little bit of luck. But then comes a really tricky point that I've seen, and it's the reality. What happens after a few tracks? Are you able to keep it up? Look at Avicii. Are you able yeah. to stay away from all the danger? It's also important, but it's also possible to really go fast, but then you have to know what you're doing. It's like driving a fast car. Make sure you have your license and that you know you have both hands on the wheel. Otherwise, yeah. you're going the wrong way. So we talked about um, your upcoming collaborations. We talked a little bit about Disruption, your latest single, which everybody should go check out. Anything else that's going to be coming up for you in the next few months? Yeah, so like I said, we, we decided to uh, jump on this new train uh, to act quickly uh, and release more. Um, yeah. Usually we would say, okay, we do a release, we wait two, three months, see how it goes in the clubs. Maybe it's getting picked up on Shazam. Yeah. Uh, aim for the festivals is also a technique. Now everything is gone. We don't even have the audience anymore. We have the streamings and the people at the radio stations. So mm. now we are releasing way more. And I would say we release once a month, maybe once a month and a half. So I will have a track on a compilation uh, in August. In September, a next single. There will also be a remix I did for somebody else. There will also be a remix of one of my tracks and so on and so on. And um, I'm kind of in love with this new uh, vibe because it keeps you sharp and um, you're on the radar more often. And I think we will need to do this until things change into a different direction. Uh, we might go clubbing again or festivals, who knows? I'm not going to predict anything anymore. Yeah. Um, but until that time, I think we need to stay sharp and release a lot of music. Definitely. Cool. Well, with that, we will wrap things up for this episode. You can find Maxim Laney's music in the description of this podcast. So go give that a listen as this podcast is just about over. Maxim, it's been great chatting with you. Appreciate you being on the show. I'm really happy to be able to do this. <laughs>